You're listening to highlights from the Creative Processes interview with Zheng Cheng. This podcast is supported by the Yan Michalski Foundation. Writing wild swans was the thing that resolved the trauma for me. When I first um, came to Britain in 1978, I was one of the first people to leave China and come to the West. I wrote about the experience in Wild Swans. And for many years, I had um, nightmares of the horrible things I, I saw and experienced. And writing Wild Swans made all these nightmares disappear. It was a wonderful process. The writing process turned trauma into memory. I was able, I am now able to talk to you about my book, to, about my life, to read it without too much pain. I think this is a luxury people in China still don't have. I mean, trauma has been suppressed. It has not been turned into memory. So I feel I'm very lucky. Writing is really the thing that has done the trick. And it took you, uh, and though a, n- a number of years, I understand, to find that courage to bear witness. I can imagine, like in, in the immediate aftermath and coming to to Britain, uh, that the urge would be then to forget. So, how many years, and how how did you find that voice? I, I know that your mother was a collaborator, and in your first book, <clears throat> yes. Well. I, for 10 years after I arrived in Britain, I didn't want to write this book um, because to write for me would be to turn backward and inward into a past I wanted to forget all about. You mentioned earlier, I mean, you know, my father died in the Cultural Revolution, my beloved grandmother who brought us up died and their death, um, were the main, most painful and are still the most painful spots in my heart. Um, so I didn't want to think about those things. And I, I wanted to enjoy life in Britain because I had come to a completely different world. Everything was new. It was like landing on Mars. And I was having a fantastic time. I was the first person to um, do many things, to go out on my own, to, you know, to lead a, a fantastic life. And life was full of exciting events. And so I, I, I just wanted to, to live, to live a new life. And then in 1988, my mother came to stay with me. And so for the first time, she told me the stories of her life and of my grandmother, her relationship with my father. And when I was listening to my mother, I I said to myself, I've got to write all this down. And then I realized how much I wanted to be a writer and how much I had always wanted to be a writer. And I loved writing when I was a child. But um, when I was growing up in Mao's China in the 1950s, 60s and 70s, it was impossible even to dream of being a writer. Being a writer was, was the most dangerous thing because almost all the writers were persecuted. Under Mao. So that desire to write had been firmly 
imprisoned in my subconscious. Um, but then I realized that, you know, when in China, I had to burn my first poem I wrote in 1968 on my 16th birthday because Red Guard had come to raid our flat. I mean, if they seen the poem, we would have got in the family would have got into trouble. So I had to quickly rush to the bathroom to tear down the poem and flush it down the, down the toilet. And, but the desire to write did not leave me. And in the following years, when I was exiled to, to the edge of the Himalayas and worked as a peasant and then as an electrician, and when I was spreading manure in the paddy fields, and when I was checking electricity supplies on top of the electricity poles, I was always writing in my head with an imaginary pen. But then I couldn't write. And then after I went to Britain, I didn't want to write. And but after my mother opened the floodgate of memories and told me and left me 60 hours of tape recordings, I decided to write. And then it was a very quick process. And it took me only two years to write Wild Swans rather long book and so I realized that I mean a lot of the things in the book uh, had been written in my head when I was back in China. I mean those years when we worked so hard but we devoted all every minute to our project. We discovered so many unknown things. I mean, every day was a day of excitement. And we also did all these um, tremendous interviews. And these people who are now dead have, you know, left their memories with us. So I'm very, very happy with the kind of writer's life I have been leading. One interview we did was with Gerald Ford. And with all the other interviews, we had found people to introduce us. And we hadn't found anyone who could introduce us to Gerald Ford. So John, my husband, was in the hotel room. And he thought, "Mm, how can we find Ford? Mm. Well, he then looked up the telephone directory in in his hotel room looked under S for secret service. (laughs) Secret service is guarding (laughs) the American president under S secret service and he dialed the number and the man picked up the phone. This was before 9-11. Yeah, we know in the 1990s. And the, the man answered the phone said, secret service, Ford protection detail and immediately gave us the number for their guys who are protecting Ford <laughs> and, um, and said, well, you know, there is a time difference. I mean, America is such a wonderful open country. That's how we, we ran the Gerald Ford protection detail and we arranged uh, an interview. And well, I have to say that a lot of that ease of access was thanks to Wild Swans. 
it's 30 years now, but at that time in the 1990s, the, the book was quite, I mean, people like Kissinger and Mobutu, he was told by Hong Kong that his protection officer was was with him in a hair salon and emailed Marcos. They all knew about the book. And so they accepted our interview requests. And it's so fascinating. I mean, the uh, Dowager uh, Shuji, uh, I, I didn't realize, and I don't know that others maybe maybe uh, in China, but I didn't realize how much she was responsible really for opening up China and uh, modernization and or these, I mean, there've been then competing forces then <laughs> opening and closing, but, and then the Sung sisters as well. I think we know the Sun Yat-sen and Sheng Kai-shek and, but, but how, their role in uh, Chinese history as well. It was it was unknown to me. But it's unknown to most people, particularly the Chinese. I mean, with the Empress Dowager Cixi, she's been maligned for more than a hundred years. She's been cast as this vicious, backward-looking, cruel woman who dragged China behind, who was responsible for all China's problems. I mean, she still has that image. It's only through research did I realize that this was not true. I first got interested in her when I started writing Wild Swans, and because my grandmother had bound feet. So I did a little research on foot binding. And I realized to my surprise that foot binding was first banned by the Empress Dowager. I mean, this was so different from the her image of being this backward-looking, archy-conservative, you know, this horrible, vicious woman. And then when I was researching Mao, I saw what free life Mao led in his youth under the Empress Dowager and in her legacy. And what an incredibly free life Mao led and the kind of freedom and the opportunities Mao enjoyed were far more than I had growing up under Mao many, many decades later. And so those discoveries made me want to write about the Empress Dowager. It's just, it's amazing how unfair history is. I mean, people often say history will exonerate me or history will be, um, somehow they have this faith in history. But in fact, I, you know, after studying of history, I realized how unfair history often is. It's totally unfair to the Empress Dowager. Through the research, I, she became somebody admirable to me. Of course, she was not a saint. I mean, as a ruler of then a third of the world's population and in the China much larger than today. I mean, you know, she inevitably, she had to use iron, uh, iron hand and often is a bloody hand, but she has also done this many other good things for China. And I just feel one has to be just. And the thing is, in fact, her last project was to turn China into a constitutional monarchy with an elected parliament. 
I mean, she'd made all the rules and did a lot of preparation work before she died in 1908. And in 1909, China had its first election in its long history. That was to provincial election of provincial parliaments. And in 1913, China had a national election. And so in the first 16 years of Republican China, until Chiang Kai-shek seized power in 1928, China was a functioning democracy. I discovered this through writing about the Empress Dowager and writing the Song sisters and their husbands, Sun Yat-sen and Chiang Kai-shek. And that's another discovery that amazed me. We hope you've enjoyed listening to these highlights. To listen to the latest episodes or learn more about participating in exhibitions or interviews, click on subscribe. Thanks for listening.